0: The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan.
1: Alexis Carroll once said, A few observations and much reasoning lead to error. Many observations and a little reasoning lead to truth. I'm Rick, and this is Not Your Typical Christian Commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective.
2: I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone.
1: And folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format. We welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at christianquestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So Jonathan, what is our topic for this fine Monday?
2: Well Rick, our question is, is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible, part two? And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to
1: the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Okay, so the question is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible? And this is part two. The end result of God's judgment upon those who do not accept Jesus is eternal fire and torment. Such is the serious warning of many Christians of many centuries before us and of our day as well. Their studied claim is that Jesus was specific and his words are the words of the gospel and therefore not subject to question. While we agree with the unquestionable nature of the words of Jesus, we do respectfully play, um, Uh, I'm sorry, let me start again. While we agree with the unquestionable nature of the words of Jesus, we do question our Christian friends' interpretation on this very serious matter. Our questions that we respectfully place are these. What if Jesus' teachings about God's judgment did not point to a burning hell at all? What if that doctrine was borrowed from ancient heathen teaching, as we discussed in part one of this series, and illegitimately, planted into what became known as the gospel centuries after Jesus spoke? And what if careful scriptural reasoning coupled with post-New Testament history could prove this? That's where we're going, Jonathan. That's what we're up to today. Um, This is a, no pun intended, a very, very hot and controversial subject. Uh, Just take a look at our Facebook page and you'll see. Uh, But, you know... This is a subject that everyone's passionate about, and we want to be respectful of people's passion, and we want to also, with passion, represent what we believe is scriptural truth. So, as we get started with part two of, is the hell of Christian tradition taught in the Bible, let's do just a quick, quick recap of part one. Was the teaching of an eternal hellfire revealed in the Old Testament? Several points, Jonathan. Let's go through them quickly.
2: Okay, Rick. God never warned Adam of sin leading to torment. The consequence was simply death. He said, you will surely die. Egyptian culture before Moses' time clearly had graphic written descriptions of a netherworld. Okay, the Bible didn't. From the start, Jewish culture had no such thing. They only had
1: death and burial underground
2: in Sheol.
1: Okay, sheol means to cover over, to to bury underground.
2: God vividly demonstrated the difference between himself and the gods of Egypt, especially in his deliverance plagues.
1: And that difference shows us that what he was teaching his people was different than what the cultures around them were learning, or, or believed in, rather.
2: God never warned Israel of such future torture as a result of disobedience.
1: There is not one Old Testament word that talks about future torments because of disobedience, not one. All of the
2: penalties of God's law to Israel were tribulations in this life, not
1: one word about hell. And that's how God helped them to see the, the error of their ways. They would be punished because they were his chosen people in this life, sometimes generations later, but it was always in this life.
2: Greek tradition clearly had a belief in a hell far Below the earth in the time of Elijah.
1: Okay, and that's what the nether world of Egyptian belief was. Nether meaning down below. So Greek tr- tradition in the time of Elijah believed in that nether world just like the Egyptians did. Canaanite
2: culture believed in an underworld in Elijah's time as well.
1: Okay, same thing, different culture, and that concept of the nether world, the underneath world, seemed to permeate many, many, many ancient cultures, but it did not exist. In Jewish thinking.
2: Jeremiah's time evidenced underworld beliefs of torment as God condemned the idolatrous torture accounts that took place in the Valley of Ben Hinnom.
1: That's a really important aspect that we're going to go back to today, uh, because the Valley of Ben Hinnom ends up being a centerpiece for the discussion of what the Hellfire Doctrine teaches and what we believe Hellfire actually, truly, really means
2: the four hundred year period after Malachi proved to be a spawning ground for idolatrous traditions in infiltrate into Jewish culture.
1: Okay, after Malachi was written, there was four hundred years or so until John the Baptist appears on the scene, and uh, we've got that period of time that was a contaminant uh, in in the. Uh, in Jewish history. Uh, Jonathan, Just we're going to touch on several Facebook comments. I just want to read one before we get into anything else here. Uh, Eric on Facebook said, Christian questions, just maybe you could be wrong. The Bible makes some plain declarations about the eternal state of hell. The axioms of logic concludes that the truth is often the most simple answer. Maybe when the Bible uses words like forever, you know, forever like unquenchable fire, fire that can't be quenched, day and night, it's because it means exactly that. But to declare declare some revelation that eternal hell is pagan is quite contrary to traditional Christian orthodoxy. One must be slow and careful when studying the scripture and be open that, in this case, you could be quite wrong. That is, of course, unless you have a certain narrative to push, which these days generates a lot of attention to your ministry. So my first point is, no, we're not trying to get attention to the ministry. We're trying to preach what we believe is the absolute word of God, okay? And we agree, you have to be slow and careful. And that's why we're doing this in three parts, Jonathan, to take it logically and historically step by step by step.
2: And Rick, coming up next segment, we're going to be uh, focusing on
1: is unquenchable fire really unquenchable? Okay, it's like you say, so that's almost like exactly what the guy is saying. He says, you know, when it says it, it means it." why don't you guys get over yourselves? Well, we're going to talk about that in the next segment, so stay with us for that. That's coming up. Uh, Jonathan, we're going to go, um, again, step by step, last week, last seg- uh, last first part. Sorry, guys. Uh, first part was about the Old Testament, and now we're transitioning into the New Testament. We're going to go to a sound bites from a gentleman by the name of John Roller, Roller uh, on the history of hell. And um, he wrote a book about the history of hell in the Christian church. And he holds very, very, very similar beliefs to those that we hold. And we're going to follow his reasoning and logic throughout the podcast, just drop in periodically. So um, he is tracking the writings of church fathers on the matter of the nature of the soul. That's what he's talking about in these sound bites. We'll go to the first one.
3: I did see that there was a running debate but it didn't start right away. What I found was 16 consecutive writers who lived from the time of Christ up until near the end of the second century, all of which believed and taught exactly as we've been saying that souls are mortal, that when the body dies, the soul dies, that nobody goes anywhere or does anything while they're dead, and that the only hope for immortality is the resurrection that's going to occur at the second coming of Christ. Sixteen consecutive writers that said that before I ran into any writer who said that souls are immortal and just live forever automatically.
1: So he brings up an interesting point about following writers after the New Testament was written.
2: And Rick, that goes all the way Back to Lucifer's first documented lie, and he said, Thou surely will not die, but God said, Thou shalt surely die.
1: Okay, and, and you're right. it's it, That is the, the contradiction that um, if you have an immortal soul, it's got to go somewhere. And when God said, You surely will die, that's a whole different meaning. Different subject for a different day. We've done several podcasts on that in the past, but thank you for bringing that in, because it's true. We see that as following a misstatement of what was originally truth. You will die. No, you won't. Well, wait a minute. It's you either will or you won't. So we've got, to, we've got to be careful with that. So let's get now to Jesus' teachings. Let's begin with John the Baptist. Why did Jesus come? John the Baptist tells us very clearly what his understanding of Jesus' coming was. John chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 from the Rotherham translation.
2: These things in Bethany came to pass beyond the Jordan, where John was immersing. On the morrow he beheld Jesus coming unto him, and saith, See the Lamb of God,
1: who taketh away the sin of the world. So John is really clear about the message of Jesus. He's a lamb of God, a lamb of sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. That was his purpose. Right? right. So John is saying that's what Jesus came for. Okay. And and look, I think all Christians say, yes, we agree with that. Yes, we agree with that. So, But let's take that now and let's build on that because Jesus also gave a very clear description of of what he came to do at the very beginning. So that was John the Baptist's description of his mission. So let's look at how Jesus describes himself. And You know, one of the fascinating things about Jesus, Jonathan, that that never ceases to amaze me. I mean, I've been studying the Bible for my entire adult life, and that's a long time, incidentally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I have never ceased to amaze at how well he knew the Old Testament and how closely he adhered to the principles of the Old Testament. So Jesus would absolutely follow the pattern that John introduced uh, him as by introducing his own mission after his baptism and wilderness experience. We go to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Let's read verses 14 to 16 first.
2: And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and was the custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Okay, so he stands
1: up to read. These are his first public words after his baptism in the synagogue environment. These are the very First things he says, according to the records of the New Testament, publicly. So this is something to pay really close attention to. So he initially introduces himself by participating in synagogue worship. And Jonathan, before we go further, I just wanted to read another quick two-little-line Facebook comment, because, you know, this is a tough subject. And Reggie on Facebook says, People, you delude yourself. Follow Jesus, or you will discover the truth of hell. Preaching falsehoods about the Word of God is very, very dangerous. And yes, Reggie, I couldn't agree more. Preaching falsehoods about the Word of God is very, very dangerous. Our whole point is to get the truth of the Word of God. That's what we're trying to do. So feel free to respond to the specifics of what we talk about. And if you think it's wrong, it'd be great to hear you say, I listened, and this part I saw, and you were wrong because. Jonathan, I would love that. (laughs) <laughs> and you know me. That, that's Absolutely. The, that's the kind of thing that, that I I would want because that helps us understand. We're all trying to find truth, right? That's so let, right. Let's Absolutely. be open and let's, let's look for it. Anyway, here's how Jesus describes himself.
2: And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing.
1: Okay, go ahead, John.
2: Rick, uh, I, I love the, the first four points here in, in verse 18. He's here to preach the gospel to the poor. Well, good news to all of us because of sin and death, we're all poor. Yep. Uh, the second point, release to the captives. Release to the captives who are in the graves or under the sea or are, the, are dust of the ground. The resurrection from the dead. The third point, recovery of the sight to the blind. All who don't have the eye salve to see now will see completely in the kingdom on earth when raised and instructed of the truth. And fourth, to set those who are oppressed. Well, who's not oppressed by sin, sickness, and death? To be set free is beyond our wildest dreams. Thy kingdom come.
1: So, so his message then is the good news that releases the captives, like you said, that that heals, that helps and proclaims that God's favor is with them. But here's the interesting thing, Jonathan. What did Jesus not say when he introduced himself by turning to this specific verse in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2? You know, the interesting thing is he stopped reading mid-sentence. He was quoting Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Let's go to Isaiah 61, verse 2, and then stop where, he st- where Jesus stopped reading. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Okay, he stops. It says he stops, and then he closes the book. But that's the middle of a sentence. What's the rest of the sentence?
2: And the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn.
1: He leaves out the day of vengeance. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he leave out the day of vengeance in his explanation of here's what I came to do? He says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your sight because that wasn't the message of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
2: No, Rick, Jesus sends a clear message that his mission was good
1: tidings. Yes, it was not about God's vengeance. Which, was, which so many say is revealed in the eternal fires of hell. And I just think that's an interesting side point. So we haven't really started yet. This has been a little bit of a recap, but we've looked at some of the words of Jesus that tell us, hey, it's not exactly the way uh, you, you think it was. He didn't come to bear down and, 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 and beat that doctrine in, into, into everyone. So look, it sure sounds like Jesus was entirely focused on a very specific message. He was and it was the gospel.
2: If Jesus' message was good news and salvation for all, did he ever talk about mankind's judgment?
0: You know what's great about subscribing to Christian Questions on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. You receive a push notification reminder every time a new episode is published. Plus, it's a good thing to binge listen to several episodes in a row. Really easy playlist features, and you can auto-download new episodes to your phone every week. So subscribe today. Now let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic.
1: Now, even though it was not his main focus, Jesus did talk about judgment, and in his teachings are several factors that many interpret as hellfire supporting. We will address some of these things today, others will be addressed in part three, and we will also address post-New Testament history of the eternal fire doctrine. So, we've got a, got a lot on our plate for today, Jonathan. So, let's let's look at some of the imagery and descriptions that Jesus himself used. What's first on our agenda? Well, Rick, unquenchable fire. This phrase is not just
2: in the New Testament.
1: Okay, so we're going to start talking about unquenchable fire. I want to go back to another Facebook comment first, though, before we get to that. And this is this is a very quick little conversation between Dusty and one of our Christian questions and helpers, uh, Leah, who uh, works with us. Dusty says, To deny biblical hell takes a lot of mental gymnastics and twisting of scriptures. Uh, Leah says, and, and they were talking about... Um, the, the uh, Gehenna, burning the, the the Valley of Gehenna, which we're going to talk about. So Leah's reaction is, "Well, does it still exist today?" She's talking about Gehenna. Dusty's reaction is, "Well, Leah, the reference made uh, it made it to the canon for a reason. Doesn't matter if it actually a burning is dump is still there or not." And I want you to remember that thought. He's saying it doesn't matter if it's still there or not. Remember that because we're going to talk about that in this segment. Fourth, then he says to one of our other, another another individual, says they burned their trash there, which goes along with other descriptions of hell being a place of torture that never ends. Now, how burning trash describes torture that never ends, I I don't get, I just literally, logically, I don't get that one. But, you know, just, uh, we're going to continually refer back to the Facebook conversations because they're helpful. They're helpful to see how, how different Christians think and the object here is to have a conversation, not sarcastically or, or, or looking down on one another, but trying to have it constructively, scripturally, logically, historically. So, Jonathan, we're going to be looking to a, a resource that we used in Part 1, The Origin and History of the Doctrine of Endless Punishment. This was written by Thomas B. Thayer, uh, who, uh, you know, he, he wrote a lexicon of the Greek New Testament. He was a scholar of New Testament Greek Uh, And this was published in 1881. So, this is is, is a much older writing. Chapter 5, Section 3, in his book on Unquenchable Fire, he talks about, he says, the prophet Isaiah describes the desolation of Edom in the following language. So, we're going to read Isaiah 34, verses 8 through 10. Pay close attention. This is about the destruction of Edom in Old Testament times. Isaiah 34, 8 through 10.
2: For Jehovah hath a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched, night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste.
1: None shall pass through it, forever and ever. Now that did have a prophetic and a literal fulfillment. But here's the question, Jonathan. You know, um, uh, Professor Thayer says that this is strong language employed to set forth the destruction of a petty tribe occupying a small small territory. And he says it furnishes an important illustration of the elasticity with which the phrases in review are used as symbols of temporal Judgments. So he's talking about the phrases "unquenchable fire" and "ever and ever." Here's my question for you, Jonathan. The in the time of Isaiah, Edom was destroyed. Correct? That's correct. It says that the fire that destroyed Edom shall not be quenched. Is it still burning today? No, it's not, Rick. Well, what did God not speak the truth? He said that he spoke the truth, but it is not burning today. Yeah, but how can that be? It says it shall not be quenched. It says the smoke shall go up forever and ever. Do you see the smoke of that fire today? Not at all. Okay, folks, you have a problem here. Because we're talking about fire that shall not be quenched. One of the points that was made emphatically in our Facebook conversations was when it says unquenchable fire, it means unquenchable fire. But in Isaiah, it says it, but the fire is no longer around. The smoke is no longer around. What does that mean? Let's go to another example. Okay. Uh, the overthrow of the Jews and the laying waste of Judea by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Now, this was another historical event in in the time of Ezekiel. So, Jonathan, let's go to Ezekiel 20, verses 47 and 48.
2: And say to the forest of Negav, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to kindle a fire in you, and it will consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched, and the whole surface from the south to the north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be
1: quenched. Okay, so my question to you, Jonathan, is that fire still burning today? No, it is not, Rick. But didn't God say that flame will not be quenched? Yes, he did. And he spoke the truth
2: but it's not burning today.
1: So it sounds like you're answering in circles. So there's got to be some kind of an explanation then. See, that's
2: right, that's right, Rick. And Rick, this goes along with Isaiah 131, Jeremiah 4, 4, and Amos 5, 6. These are also unquenchable fires, not still burning.
1: So this phrase of unquenchable fire appears many times in the Old Testament, and in every single instance, it's not still burning. That's right. So That's right. what is God saying? Well, before
2: that, Rick, coming up in our next segment, what did Jesus mean when he spoke about hellfire? That's what we're going to go on next segment.
1: Okay, so right now we're talking about this unquenchable thing. Let's get through the unquenchable question here. So let's go back, Jonathan, to uh, Professor uh, Thomas B. Thayer in that book of his um the Origin of and History of the Doctrine of Endless Punishment, and we're in Chapter 5 of that book. We're just going to read some, some, some snippets to kind of get the flavor of what he's, how he explains this.
2: These passages are sufficient to show that the sacred writers use the phrase in review as figures of God's judgment in the earth, of the calamities which he set upon wicked nations, though the agency of war, famine, and desolation. In not one of the texts cited is the language employed as a figure of any judgments or sufferings, but such as belong to time and earth.
1: So he's saying that this phrase of unquenchable fire that he is discussing has a very clear picture of judgments in the earth. He's saying that's what it actually means. Continue.
2: Now, if the Savior used the same phraseology used by the prophets and the Jews, he would undoubtedly employ it in the same sense
1: if he wished or expected them to understand him. So he's saying that this is the way the language was, and when Jesus used the phrase unquenchable fire, he would undoubtedly pick up on what the Old Testament meant by unquenchable fire. Then there's a a very clear explanation a little bit later on in his writing in this chapter, chapter 5 of his book. What's that explanation? Hence, as
2: Haman an excellent commentator of the english church says unquenchable fire is simply a fire never quenched till it has done its work or in other words a thoroughly destructive fire
1: that gives you a whole different picture of what unquenchable fire is and and jonathan it makes sense it makes sense because there are many old testament phrases using that 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 statement unquenchable fire and these are god prophesying and unless you're saying god's lying it has to have a meaning other than fire that can never be ending for the rest of eternity and eternity and eternity and eternity cuz every one of those fires ended every single one of them
2: thoroughly destructive fire to cause Judgment on those nations that had sinned
1: so badly. Okay, perfect way to describe it. Now let's jump to the New Testament. John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus and following the symbolic language that you just described from the Old Testament in Matthew 3, verse 12, what does John the Baptist say?
2: His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will
1: burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire gathering the wheat burning the chaff and 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 professor thayer comments on it but we'll just sort of sum it up it's talking about the destruction of 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 israel as as the favored nation their desolation and he's saying the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire now did that mean fire that burns forever and ever and ever and ever no it's just like the old testament He's building, when you think about it, John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet because he's before before Jesus. So he's building on exactly what was said over and over again. And folks, look, if you you are pro-Hellfire and you're listening to this, you say, well, how can you say that? Look up the Old Testament scriptures. Ask the honest question. Did God mean what he said? The answer is, of course he did. Then we must need to understand it a little differently. And the way you put it was perfect. The... A fire that will never be quenched till its work is done. Let's look at some of Jesus' own words regarding this unquenchable idea related to the language of his day. Okay? Mark chapter 9, verse 43.
2: If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go
1: into hell into the unquenchable fire. Okay. Now, that is a verse, Mark chapter 9, is, is uh, these verses in Mark 9, 43, all the way up to 47 and 48, which we're going to quote in a moment, are verses that are continually used to describe eternal torment. He uses unquenchable fire. Let's go back to Professor Thayer talking about the Greek language and the use of that exact
2: word. Strabo. The celebrated geographer, speaking at the Parathon, a temple in Athens says, In this was the inextinguishable or unquenchable lamp, asbestos, the very word used in Mark 3.12, Luke 3.17, and Mark 9.43. Of course, it all means is that the lamp was kept constantly or regularly burning during the period alluded to, though Extinguished or quenched ages
1: ago. So in normal Greek usage outside of scripture, the way the word was used in the Greek language had that same sense of burning and burning and burning until it was done burning. Could not be put out until it ended its cycle. Another example from from the ancient Greek.
2: Homer used the phrase asbestos gelios, unquenchable laughter. But we can hardly suppose they are laughing now
1: and will laugh eternity. Okay, we can't suppose they're laughing now. I mean, unquenchable laughter. He used the phrase the same word. Jonathan, have you ever had unquenchable thirst?
2: Oh, absolutely. You just needed to keep drinking and drinking. But eventually, I was quenched.
1: And that's the point of the use of the word. Why can we use it that way, but we don't allow the scriptures to use it that way, when the scriptures did use it that way? I mean, we've got to be intellectually honest in our study of the scriptures. Let's go to Mark 9, verses 47 and 48.
2: If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes, to be cast into
1: hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Okay, now that uses a slightly different Greek word. You know, be honest about it. Okay, but it's a de- the the first Greek word that we use, unquenchable, in Mark nine forty three is a derivative of this word. They both mean to extinguish. Okay, this what Jesus is speaking in Mark nine forty seven and forty eight is directly quoted from Isaiah sixty six verses twenty three and twenty four. He's quoting that verse. Let's go back and see what he's quoting. And it shall be from new
2: moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. And Rick, that's obviously a future time. Right, okay. Then then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. And they will be in abhorrence to all mankind.
1: So what Jesus is quoting, when you look at it, there's no torment, there's no torture, there's just terribly sad and age-lasting reminders of destruction of those who ultimately stand against God.
2: And because this is a future picture of final judgment, Rick, how sad that people chose second death over everlasting life promised to the earthly seed, and we are told
1: not to mourn them. Um, It was their choice. And again, the reason we say this is absolutely not eternal torment is, first of all, unquenchable. We've already discussed from a scriptural standpoint. You've got seven or eight Old Testament scriptures that you have to answer, God was wrong. Okay. Secondly, it's talking about looking on the corpses of men. And it's describing this whole scenario in the context of corpses that are being eaten by worms. That's what it is. No torture, no torment corpses eaten by worms and fire destroying them till there's nothing left to be destroyed.
2: Well, Rick, if the corpses are gone, the worms will also disappear.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly, because the work will be done. The work will be done. A couple of other examples from Greek life using this phrase of unquenchable fire.
2: Plutarch, the well-known author of the biographies familiarly known as Plutarch's Lives, calls the sacred fire of the temple unquenchable fire per asbeston the exact expression of Jesus though he says in the very
1: next sentence it had sometimes gone out so he calls it unquenchable even though in the very next sentence of his writing he says it had gone out all right so it gives you a sense that you have to use the words in the context that they were meant to be used josephus what about him
2: Speaking of festivals of the Jews, says that everyone brought fuel for the fire of the altar, which continued always unquenchable, as beston. Here we have a union of word supposed to mean specifically endless, when in the form of aninos, the word unquenchable, and yet both together do not convey the idea of duration without end, for the fire of which Josephus speaks had actually gone out, and the altar been destroyed at the time he wrote and still he calls the fire always unquenchable.
1: So Josephus in the Greek language used two words, asbestos and a word for aeonian, like age lasting and you know a lot of times that word is translated everlasting in the Bible, a form of it. And and what what Professor Thayer's is saying is he put those two words together, but he the, the fire had already gone out af- before he even wrote this. And he's giving the illustration that it stayed until its course was over. So the evidence clearly points to the Old Testament and New Testament phrase unquenchable fire. Evidence, not, not preference, not tradition. Evidence points to unquenchable fire as meaning that fire does not go out until its destructive work is complete. Jesus does not quote prophecy and suddenly out of the context of all the sacred biblical writings before him, change the meaning of what was said to contradict all that was previously prophesied.
2: Rick, he can't contradict God's word. He came to do his Father's will.
1: Absolutely, positively. This gives us a whole different view of this unquenchable question. So look, this is really an eye-opener about how we look at language and meaning.
2: It is. So let's get to the hard stuff. What about Gehenna, the place that Jesus speaks of in which those fires burn? What does it mean?
0: As we try to stay on track with research, sometimes you go down unexpected roads. That's part of education, debates, and differing opinions. You just can't take everyone at their word, and oftentimes you have to consider the other side of the story. That's why we're always asking our listeners to give their opinions on the questions we're answering. Message us at ChristianQuestions.com or through the Christian Questions app. Speaking of the other side... Time to go in reverse with a CQ Contradiction.
1: Here's where all of the elements of controversy seem to come together. If you define Gehenna, which is often translated hellfire, for what it really is, the whole burning debate will begin to be quenched. Of course, in light of tradition and emotion, this is no easy task, but we're going to try anyway. Okay. All right. It is. It's very <laughs> difficult what we're looking at here. And and, and Jonathan, two things. First of all, uh, from I think it's the C, uh, Christian Questions app. And folks, if you don't have the Christian Questions app, go to your App Store, Google Play, or. Um, or your Apple App Store, and just type in Christian Questions and uh, download It's a free app, and you can get all kinds of Christian Questions stuff there with that. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Samuel says, uh, For the upcoming Hell Part 2, I was curious about the way you interpret Matthew 25, 31-46. That's the parable of the sheep and the goats, especially Matthew 25, 46. Um, he says he, he had some difficulty understanding where we would land on the idea of hell from Part 1. Uh, he says there's an interesting point that the lack of mention of hell in the Old Testament would give the idea that hell, eternal punishment, um, it does not exist despite the references to it by Christ himself in the New Testament. So he's got several questions on several scriptures, and we'll use a lot of his questions and scriptures in our part three. Now, Samuel, I apologize. (laughs) They're not going to be thoroughly answered in part two, but part two is really to establish... The words of Jesus as a base, we'll come back to some of the details in part three, but also the history of the church after Jesus and the apostles, because you see things that you just don't expect to see. So Samuel, thanks for those comments uh, to uh, give us more, work, more to work with for part three coming up in a few weeks. So Jonathan, one other quick thing uh, in this segment before we get started, because we're talking about the language and the use of language. I don't know if you remember, years and years and years ago when, when, when Jimmy Carter was president, I think, and I'm hazy on the details, I think he spoke in Poland or someplace like that. And he was speaking and he had a translator for this massive audience. And he said it was a, you know, a real strong desire of his to go and speak to them. Well, the translator translated what he said as he was lusting after them, sexually lusting after them. Oh, oh. Now, the translator got fired after but it was a close meaning he had strong desire and that and it was just it was just pushed beyond we have to be careful with language that's the point we have to find the original meaning and not add or subtract from what it meant that's what we're trying to do here so second on the agenda is what what jesus meant when he talked about hellfire okay what did he mean And um, just wanted to go to another quick Facebook comment uh, from Bob. He says, Almost everything we know about hell comes from Jesus himself, his own words. He said it's outer darkness. It never ends. One's memories torment him with no consolation, no sense of the presence of God ever. The absolute worst thing about it, it never ends. Jesus said, Don't fear those who can kill your body, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Hell is so bad that John describes it as a lake of fire where the torment never ends. Good news is no one has to go there so forth and so on. So that's Bob's comment and you know he he brings up a good point that Jesus did say some things that you got to look at and say what did he mean? And the good news is that well we believe the really good news is that all will have an opportunity to hear the words of Jesus if not now in the day of judgment. So we appreciate the comments but what we would ask is if you're going to make comments and you're going to argue quote unquote let's argue with what we've said. Just don't, don't argue the, 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 a scripture. Tell us why what we've said and why our reasoning is wrong. Go back to the podcast. Isolate something that you say is wrong and say, in this podcast, you said this or you quoted that or, or you interpreted this and this is wrong because that gives us something to go on and something to respond to. That makes for a better conversation. Having said that, the word translated hellfire and sometimes hell in the New Testament denotes actually a literal place. The word is
2: what? Gehenna, the valley of the son of Hinnom, uh, a valley of Jerusalem.
1: Okay, what was this valley? And and from Nelson's Bible uh, Dictionary.
2: In the time of Jesus, the valley of Hinnom was used as a garbage dump of Jerusalem into where thrown all the filth and garbage of the city, including the dead bodies of animals and executed criminals. To consume all this, fires burned constantly, Maggots worked
1: in the filth. Okay, that's a very graphic, kind of gross description of what this was. This is an irrefutable continuation of the Jeremiah incident that we mentioned earlier that happened in the valley, in that same valley, and the fact that God did call it a cursed place. He said, make it into a place where nothing lives. That's what he said. Destroy everything there. As a matter of fact, let's go to Jeremiah 19, verse 7. Here's how he's describing how he's looking at this valley after what they did.
2: I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. And I will give all their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth.
1: Okay, that is a description of the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, that like you said, that in the Old Testament they were sacrificing children to uh, Molech. And God was so angry, he said, that's it. Yeah,
2: he also said it never came into his mind that they would do something so atrocious.
1: Right, because they were torturing. Yeah. That's what they were doing. They were torturing those people who were alive and burning them alive. That's what they were doing. Here's a key point, Jonathan, and and we're going to draw a conclusion because we've gone through this previously, and so we're not going to go through all the the minute details, but here's, here's what we believe. Every text that refers to this valley, the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, in the New Testament as a potential final judgment is referring to those who should know better. So Jesus spoke about this always to those who should know better, he never spoke to the average sinner of society about this place.
2: Well, Rick, that should be a wake-up call to Christians. We
1: should know better. We should know better. And he's talking to them about the city dump. He's talking to them about an incinerator, literally. The incinerator of the day for Jerusalem was in the Valley of, of Hinnom. Okay, Gehenna, that's the Greek word for it. That's where you through things to get, have them consumed and destroyed forever. And nothing alive was ever thrown in. That's the physical fact according to Jewish uh, law. They were not allowed to torment and torture, and they didn't. Jesus uses this several times. Let's go through each time. Jesus' first use of Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, he's speaking to his followers, to his followers, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 29 and 30.
2: If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one
1: of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And also in verse 22 of Matthew 5, he he mentioned the word uh, Gehenna as well. But the point is, Jonathan, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the body members, his followers. Right. He's speaking directly to his disciples. Look at the context. That's what it says. And he's saying, you, you, not them, not the crowds, which which were incidentally behind them. Okay? The crowds were there when he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, but he was talking to his disciples. And he says, you have to watch out. You're the one. You be careful because of the incinerator. You don't want to be, you don't want to have your end be the incinerator because that's an utter end and utter destruction. Um, just uh, just a quick point another facebook comment this is from jeff he says all i know is the rich man was burning where he was while lazarus was in abraham's bosom nice and comfortable spin it how you want to guys i'm done okay and uh, my response to that is there's no spin here okay there's no spin we're going to we're going to briefly touch on the the account the story the parable of the rich man and lazarus very briefly today we'll get into that much more in part 3 And again, it's taking things in the context and the language in which they were spoken. And I cannot stress enough. And folks, test us on this. If you don't believe it, look it up yourself. You know, Jonathan, let let me put it this way. Jonathan, are you a Greek scholar? No, I'm not. (laughs) Now ask me the same question.
2: Are you, Rick, a Greek scholar?
1: Heck no. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) not. So we rely on those. Have gone before, who incidentally don't necessarily believe the same way we do.
2: You're right; they don't.
1: But we believe. Well, Thayer does. But uh, you right. know, but but you know, we we rely on their expertise to understand the language because it's beyond our personal understanding. So we're not pretending to to be uncovering some revelation. All we're doing is finding true meaning as best as we can. So in this first use, Jesus spoke to his followers. Our second point on the agenda was, you know, what Jesus meant when he talked about hellfire. What's our third point? Early church
2: corruption of true biblical teachings.
1: Okay, so we're going to cover Jesus' words about hellfire and early church corruption, kind of flip back and forth between the two of them. So let's pause and go back to the early church corruption of true biblical teachings. And we're going to go back to John Roller, uh, The History of Hell, Hellfire Debunked, and now he's going through some of the church fathers uh, specifically.
3: And this was a time period when they didn't have mass media like we have today. Goodness, they didn't even have printing press. Yeah. So the fact that Athanagoras had come out with this theory, uh, everybody didn't hear about it right away. And so we pass all the way over then to the end of the second century uh, before we run into another writer who starts writing like that. He's in Alexandria, Egypt which is another place which was a great center of Greek philosophy and Greek um, thinking. The more I've studied the writings of Clement of Alexandria, and he wrote a lot, so it's a tremendous field to study and read everything he wrote. the more it seems to me that at some points during his life, he held the conditionalist viewpoint, and then at other points he held the naturalist viewpoint. And It's just unclear, because we don't have actual dating on when he wrote his various books, so it's yeah. unclear uh, whether he shifted from position A to B or position B to A.
1: You know, and I appreciate that when he's he's describing that. He's telling, he's saying, you know, the conditionalist viewpoint is, you know, you don't have immortality. The naturalist viewpoint is, is that you do. And he's saying it's unclear as to which way Clement was at the end of his life. He did fluctuate between the two. That's intellectual honesty to say, I'm not sure which way he ended up. But that was a, a running debate in his own mind. So I appreciate that as he looks at, um, the, the history of the church fathers and some of their own questions and some of their own left turns when we believe they should have gone right as we see by, by scripture and by others. So let's take a quick look at how the doctrine of hellfire worked its way into the church. And first of all, it's not a surprise that, it, that corruption, because we believe hellfire, the idea of hellfire is corruption, it's not a surprise that corruption came into the church. Acts 20, 28, and 30.
2: Be on the guard for yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Well, Rick, the age old dilemma... Power, greed, and control. It sounds a lot like Satan's focus in the garden.
1: <laughs> You're right. It does. And, and the Apostle Paul, talking to the elders uh, in, in the Church of Ephesus, was very specific about, be careful, because there are going to be those who want, who want attention for themselves, who want a following for themselves. They don't want the gospel. They want to create a gospel that fits their needs. Don't go there. So, with that thought in mind, and with the belief that we have, and honestly, this is our true scripturally-based belief that the hellfire idea of eternal torment and torture is a corruption of Christianity, let's go back to uh, Thomas Thayer in his book, chapter uh, six of the book, Introduction of the Doctrine of Hellfire and so forth into the Christian Church. And again, we're just reading snippets to get an idea of what he was saying.
2: A look at some early church fathers and points about the questionable nature of their writings. Some hint towards a punishment after death, but none an everlasting punishment. Let us note the steps of its progress and mark its growth from the first departure from the simplicity of Christ to the full development of the monster in the time
1: of Tertullian. Sorry. That's all right, Tertullian. Okay, so the, he's gonna he's gonna break it into four aspects of growth. And what's the first one?
2: The denial of a resurrection to the wicked and unbelieving, the soul remaining in Hades as disembodied spirit. And AD one ten, or some ten years after the death of John.
1: Okay, so he's talking about you know denying Scripture, denying of the resurrection of the wicked and unbelieving. And, you know, well, what scripture would they have been denying? Well, let's take a look. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29.
2: Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who have done the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Rick, even King James was influenced by these errors where he translated the word judgment, damnation, but the Greek word is judgment.
1: Yeah, and, and you know the important thing here is it says all who are in their tombs. Now, even if you believe in hell, it's not you're not in the tomb is not hell. It's someplace else. So Jesus is saying specifically, an hour is coming in the future, all who are in their tombs are going to hear my voice. Some are to come to be judged. Some are going, be, are going to be raised to, to life. So, so quick observations here. Jesus said the dead were in their
2: tombs, not in hell or anywhere else. That is... How do you explain that? Jesus said that there was an appointed future time for them to be raised.
1: So the idea of hell puts them someplace already, and, and that's not at all what Jesus is saying.
2: Jesus said that sinners would be raised to a time of judgment. This indicates their judgment hadn't yet begun. And that's huge.
1: How do, you, to, to, how, do you, how do you put this scripture in the context of all of that other teaching? How do you take those specific points and explain them away? I don't get it. Let's go to AD 110. I- Ignatius uh, was one of those individuals who started going down that, 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 uh, that wrong path.
2: Supposing the epistle ascribed to this father to be genuine and the date given correct, we find in them nothing definite on the question in review. Speaking of those who, by wicked doctrine, corrupt the faith of God, he says, he that is thus defiled shall depart
1: into unquenchable fire, and so also shall he that hearkens to him. Okay, and that was Ignatius' writing, okay? Now, how many would read this and proclaim that he's speaking of endless punishment? Well, people might because it says depart into unquenchable fire, but remember at the time it was written what unquenchable meant. It meant to do the work it was meant to do, and then it was over, okay? Can't change the language. We are not, we don't have have the power to do such things. We have no authority to change the meaning, to get the conclusion to fit our preferential view. So, Jonathan, here, we've begun talking about Jesus' own use of the idea of Gehenna and what it means and where it fits. And so, knowing history and language really changes things. It does. So let's get more detailed.
2: How prevalent is the Gehenna teaching in Jesus' own words, and what does that prevalence mean?
0: There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now.
1: We've already mentioned that every time Jesus spoke of Gehenna, it was, a, it was to those who should have known better and not to the average sinner of his day. Now, let's focus on how often he spoke of Gehenna. And how often the other New Testament writers taught about it as well? Because you know, Jonathan, one of the comments we've seen on on Facebook is that well, you know, Jesus spoke about you know hell more than anything else. Well, no, he actually didn't. Okay, and and we're going to look at all of the times Jesus spoke about Gehenna, about the place, about the 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 the, the valley that was the, the the city dump, that was the incinerator where things were destroyed. The first use was in Matthew 5. He spoke about it a couple of times within a few verses of each other. Jesus' second use of Gehenna, he's speaking to his followers, and, he, and he's getting them ready, the 70 ready to go out and preach. And here's what he tells them. Matthew ten twenty-eight. sorry.
2: Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in
1: hell. And hell means Gehenna. Gehenna, right? Yeah. Right, so in Jerusalem's garbage dump. Destruction. Right. See, he's using, he's using the physical place. So when we say hell, we should really say in the Valley of Hinnom. That's where the garbage dump is. Right, you're right. That's where the fire burns up the refuse. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus does not refer to torment. He refers to destruction. Why? Because that's what the garbage dump was. And it's interesting. Again, for those who believe in, in in the in the concept of hellfire, this scripture has been quoted. You know, in, in some of the Facebook conversations as well. And they say, well, you know, it says, "Rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell." There's a problem, Jonathan. The word "destroy." What does it mean?
2: <laughs> it means
1: destroyed. Yeah. Dead. To, Dead. Dis- to destroy fully. Villy. That's what the literal definition of the word is when you destroy something you don't keep it alive and going you you break it you make it so it never works again when you destroy it's gone it's done it's over okay so this is the second use of jesus talking about gehenna about the city garbage dump and he's talking to his followers not to the people not to the sinners but to his followers that they have to be only afraid of god who could if they are disobedient Uh, in in a long-term way, put them into this place of destruction, and that would be the end of that. Let's go back to the creeping in of the torment doctrine into the Church. Uh, Again, back to uh, Professor Thayer's book.
2: Polycarp, in 112 AD, the only thing bearing on our inquiry in the epistle of this father is the following. Whosoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and says that there shall be neither any resurrection nor judgment.
1: He is the firstborn of Satan. Okay, that's pretty, pretty dramatic. And this was the, the second point that Professor Thayer was making is that uh, Polycarp was saying the judgment after death and the punishment of the unbelieving and the wicked, he was saying it was judgment after death and not in, in, a, in, in the resurrection context. So it's a perversion of the purpose of the resurrection as explained by Jesus in, in, in um, John 5, 20 and 29 that we read previously. The perversion of the resurrection had already begun in the Apostle Paul's time. We know that from 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18.
2: And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And they upset the faith of some.
1: Okay, so the doctrine of the resurrection was perverted very, very early. Why? Because it's dramatic. And if you, can get, if you can get the doctrine to work in your favor, you pick the dramatic ones to work in your favor. Why do you think the doctrine, the teaching of, of, of the, the early church and healing and all of that has, has gone so far out of whack now? Because it's dramatic, the more dramatic the teaching, the easier it is to take it and create something new and exciting that, that fits your agenda. So, that's the, 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 when we see that, then, so the, the second point was a perversion of the purpose of the resurrection. The first point was, uh, you know, denying some of the res, that the resurrection is even needed. Now you're perverting the resurrection. Okay. Back to. Our, our second agenda, which is that's right,
2: back to Jesus's use of the word Gehenna, uh, using the word hell. This is the third use, right? Because right. we've already been to Matthew five twenty nine, Matthew ten twenty eight. Rick, we're heading to Matthew eighteen verse nine.
1: Okay, and this is also in Mark nine forty three to forty seven. So Matthew eighteen nine. Go ahead.
2: If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Okay,
1: fiery hell. Um, <clears throat> fiery is is a different word from hell. Hell is Gehenna. Hell. That's right, Gehenna. So mm-hmm. he's saying to be cast into the fiery incinerator. Garbage dump. right?
2: Garbage dump. Yeah.
1: Because he's talking about a place, and it's outside of Jerusalem, and it's called the Valley of Hinnom. And that's where they put sulfur so the fires would always burn.
2: And, and Rick, Jesus' disciples knew exactly what he was talking about when he said Valley of
1: Ben-Hinnom. Right, right. And, and because we don't have any further explanation for Jesus to say, and by the way, I mean you're going to go in there alive. See, he never said no, that. And not. they all knew that nothing alive was ever thrown in there. That's what they knew. So if he didn't explain it outside of that, they have no reason to jump to such a, I think, ridiculous conclusion. There's no reason presented. There's no torment here. It's simply humiliation and utter destruction.
2: And no torment here at all.
1: Right. And, and again, these are Jesus using the word that is translated in King James Version, hell or hellfire. fire. Okay, so now let's go to the third step, according to post-New Testament history from the book from Thomas Thayer, uh, that he's showing how the doctrine got worse and worse and worse as time went on. We started out uh, AD 110, then we're AD 112 to 140 with Polycarp and his writings, Now we're moving further, the future torment, final annihilation of souls of the wicked, AD 140 to 190. So we're going to be talking about Justin Martyr and his beliefs. We're going to give a little introduction as to who he was first.
2: This celebrated personage was a Grecian philosopher. His learning and reputation gave him great influence among the Christians, though he lacked judgment was credulous and often exceedingly absurd in his interpretation of Scripture. His conversation did not destroy his individuality. He, remained many of his early heathen no- uh, he retained many of his early heathen notions and the dress of profession of Platonic philosopher. And in some respects, his creed was a sad mix of pagan falsehoods with Christian
1: truths. So now, you know, you you look at that and you say, wow, that's pretty harsh. But what Professor Thayer is doing is he's looking at the work of Justin Martyr, seeing where he came from and, and making observations as to what he brought with him from his pagan background. And Jonathan, this is one of the things that we've got to look at and be really, really honest about because when we look at ourselves, we honestly do the same things we bring baggage with us right right every human being does that so for us to sit there and say oh look what he did without look turning around saying yeah but how do i do that kind of thing right exactly what baggage do i bring into this conversation what should be left at the door so that we can study the scriptures and folks what we're trying to do is study the scriptures in clarity and and historically look at them Understand them, absorb them, get a sense of what the language meant, what the pictures meant at that time. And look at it from the standpoint of going, starting from the beginning and moving forward and starting instead of starting from now and looking backward. Because if you start from now and you look backward, all your, the glass that you're looking through is tainted with tradition, with misrepresentation and misinterpretation. But if you start from the beginning, like we did with part one, and build the case, you're not getting all of the later misrepresentations because you're, 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 you're building your case before they existed. That's why we did part one, Old Testament first. Jesus believed in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke the Old Testament. We need to understand it. And now we get through to the New Testament. And now we're looking beyond the New Testament. And here's what Justin Martyr Here's what his belief statement was at that point between A.D. 140 and 190.
2: With regard to the subject of our inquiry, he uses the following language. Everyone is stepping forward into everlasting misery or happiness, according to his works. Moreover, we say that the souls of the wicked, being reunited to the same bodies, shall be consigned over to eternal torments.
1: Now you'll look at that and say, whoa, look, there you go. He believes in eternal torment. Well, not quite so fast. Let's get a little more context because Professor Thayer looks further into Justin Martyr's writings and here's what he says about them.
2: These passages are strongly phrased and might be taken as evidence that Justin believed in endless punishment if there was nothing in his writings to conflict with them. Justin did not believe in endless torments, but in the final annihilation of the wicked as the following will show. Souls are not immortal, says he. I do not say that all souls will die. Those of the pious will remain after death in a certain better place, and those of the unholy and wicked in a worse place, all expecting the time judgment.
1: So, you know, it's really difficult because you you see this statement and you say, ah, see, he believed in eternal torment. Well, but further on, he says, look, souls are not immortal. So we have to, again, it comes down to taking things in their proper context. We need to do that looking at the Church Fathers after the New Testament We need to do that looking at the words of Jesus, like we're doing right now. We need to do that with the Old Testament. And in the next segment, we're going to do that with the rest of the New Testament. So, Jonathan, we've gone through three uses of Gehenna that Jesus spoke.
2: That's right. Let's go to the fourth, Rick. And um, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, giving them their final warnings. And we find that in Matthew 23, 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you
1: escape the sentence of hell? So it's interesting because the premise that we made at the beginning was that uh, Jesus spoke about Gehenna, the, the dump, the trash dump, the incinerator for Jerusalem, only to people who should have known better. He never speaks about it to the Pharisees until the very end. Matthew 23 is his last time trying to save them. And he says, how will you escape the sentence of the incinerator? And Rick, there's no talk of torment in his words. Wouldn't Jesus have told them about such an important consequence?
2: Of course. If, if it was real,
1: he should absolutely warn them. Because he's trying to scare them. You know, when you read Matthew 23, there are seven woes that he gives to the Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! I mean, he's bearing down on them. He is pulling at all stops because this is his last, he knows it's his last time to be able to communicate with them and to find their hearts, and they just wouldn't listen. If the hellfire thing existed where they would be tormented, don't you think he would have explained it in a way that they could understand it? Because Jewish tradition from the Bible didn't have a hell of, of torment. It didn't. So they would have had nothing to go on Except Jesus' words, and these are Jesus' words. It's about the incinerator. So that's it. it. It's, it's that humiliating destruction that he was warning him about. Right, right. So, Jonathan, this is it. Jesus spoke about Gehenna only four times. That's it. That's it. No more. No more. Only four times. Now, there are those who say, yeah, but what about the rich man and Lazarus, and what about the weeping and gnashing of teeth? Yeah, I understand those things. Those are different. We'll get to those okay we're not for you know (laughs) one of the things sometimes people say is oh you know you're avoiding this no 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 no. we're just trying to take things slowly methodically there's no scripture no scripture that we want to avoid none if you think we are tell us we'll we'll address it let's go to another soundbite this is about tertullian okay this is where the the eternal fire and torment thing really comes to roost john roller Uh, uh, roller from his book on Tertullian, who he calls the master of torment.
3: The first really clear, really thoroughgoing writer who holds the modern position is a guy named Tertullian of Carthage, uh, writing right around the border between the 2nd century and the 3rd, right around the year 200. He's the guy who first spelled out the theory that the souls of those who are unsaved are going to burn in hell, fire, forever and ever and ever, never burning up. Okay. And he specified how this process works. He wrote it right down in detail. You know, every single cell of their body is going to be on fire and burn until it is burned up completely, and then it's replaced by a newly created cell that wow. will start burning uh, and burn forever. So he's got it down into a very scientific description
1: Okay, and I mean it's pretty graphic. Uh, Thomas Thayer says uh, regarding Tertullian AD 20, 200 to 220.
2: This father was originally a pagan by birth and a lawyer by profession. He seems to have believed in the strictly endless punishment of the wicked and to have argued against the doctrine of their annihilation, or to use his own words, against the doctrine that the wicked would be consumed and not punished. That is, endlessly. So
1: <clears throat> we've got the, the development of the early, many of the early, or some of the early church fathers going down this road, but it takes it a takes hundred and some odd years for it to start to fully develop. It's not there at the beginning, and that, that's the real point. Okay, and that's a really important point. Jonathan, just want a quick another Facebook comment. This one from Fred on Facebook. He says, I just can't get past the verse in the book of Revelation like this one in chapter 20 or this one in chapter 21, but the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in a lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You can't spiritualize that away or say it means something else. It's very straightforward about the eternal destination of the lost. We'll deal with that in part three, but you notice what it says in that verse. It says, this is the second death. And if the, uh, see, I told you we're going to get to it later, but I'm trying to answer it now because I can't resist. (laughs) But if the fire in the garbage dump was meant to destroy, and this is the second death, which is utter destruction, the picture of fire here is also meant to destroy and that's why it's called the second death not life with torture it's called death anyway <laughs> having said all of that Jonathan we've covered a lot of ground here and you know here's the thing when you put history and context together piece by piece it sure is convincing it is So let's add one last piece.
2: How prevalent is the Gatinect teaching after Jesus' ascension in the rest of the New Testament?
0: Every episode we cover a lot of ground. Part of gathering all the information and drawing conclusions is having a thorough conversation. Thanks to all our listeners for all your feedback every week. Rick and Jonathan want to hear more comments and questions. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com through all our social media channels and download our app by searching Christian Questions in your app store. Now, since we have puzzle pieces everywhere, let's put those pieces together.
1: The fact that Jesus only spoke about Gehenna four times should really be a wake-up call. Some may say that we left out the rich man and Lazarus story, to which we respond that Gehenna was not even mentioned in the rich man and Lazarus story. Check the Greek. It's not there. More than this, more on this will be in, in part three. So Jesus talked about Gehenna four times. What does the rest of the New Testament say? Because this we would assume to be one of the absolute positive most important things that you would need to teach so everybody would be on the same page, correct? Oh, it should. It Absolutely. should. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to get to the rest of the New Testament. After we talk a little bit about what happens after Tertullian, uh, again, from John Roller, The History of Hell, Hellfire, debunked. He's following the the history of the uh, church traditions after Tertullian.
3: Tertullian of Carthage is the guy who uh, taught that. And even after his time, there were still other writers who held the biblical position. Right. But the sad part of it is his influence was very pervasive. And more and more from his time on, you began to see the writers holding that position and fewer and fewer writers holding the conditionalist position. They never go away completely. As the early church continues on right up to the end of my book, uh, the very last writer that I covered, who is writing all the way into the 300s now, Arnobius of Sicca, he still says, I believe that the souls die and, and that when they're punished, they're burned up and completely destroyed, and that there's no immortality for the unsaved.
1: And so, you know, that's an interesting point because a lot of those who have um, talked uh, to, to us, uh, or in, in many cases, honestly talked at us on the, in the Facebook conversation, uh, have said, "Well, you know, this is church tradition. This is what the church has always said." But one of the things to understand is there were those who did not agree. For all through the all through history, they were just buried. By the overwhelming popularity of the doctrine.
2: The dramatics of that doctrine.
1: Right. And why was it dramatic and why was it popular? And folks, let me be blunt. It was popular because when you can scare the bejesus out of people, you can get them to do what you want them to do. And if you can paint such a dastardly picture, and if you remember in part one, we talked about Greek Uh, Greek philosophers saying this is a great belief system it's really not true but it really scares the people and we can control them that way and we really need to keep this in place same thing happened in the Christian church What, what, what a counterproductive gospel that turned out to be so fourth on the agenda is what
2: well Rick it's getting a New Testament perspective on the teaching of hellfire
1: okay So let's go to the rest of the New Testament, okay? And uh, before before we go to the rest of the New Testament, let me go to another Facebook comment. And, you know, up to this point, Jonathan, every single Facebook comment has been like, you guys are nuts. Okay, so I thought we might throw in a couple that were different. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) This week I listened to your podcast on Hell Twice just to make sure I understood it correctly, talking about part one you've covered the Egyptian, Greek, and Roman versions of hell. For part two, is it possible to also cover what Islam's version of hell is? This would do a lot of service to former Muslims. This person is a former Muslim, former Muslim converts, myself included. When I was a Muslim, I was so scared to die because I don't didn't want to end up in hell. As a Christian, I do believe... In the eternal hell for those who refuse to accept Jesus as their Savior. So, if I understood you correctly, the unbelievers will be judged on Judgment Day by Jesus, but no one will be sent to eternal furnace, right? And our answer is right. right. <laughs> anyway, she says, your argument on hell makes a lot of sense. Thank you for opening my mind's eyes. God bless, Lila. Okay, and, you know, and former Muslim, uh, obviously, we didn't cover the Muslim perspective, we may touch on it in, in part three, I'm not sure if there will be time, but appreciate her and she actually sent us a link uh, to, to go to to check that out. So appreciate her honesty and saying, look, it's been my belief, but you know what, this makes sense. And I and, and you know need to need to, to kind of work through it and question it and figure it out. So Appreciate that comment. Had to throw a good one in there. Well, maybe if we have time, we'll get to one more <laughs> that's, that, that, that's pro this this perspective. But the, the New Testament perspective on the teachings of hellfire. Okay, let, let's sum up Jesus' ministry first.
2: Jesus' ministry was for three and a half years. He mentioned Gehenna four times. Okay, that's not a lot in three and a half years. What else? The rest of the New Testament covers over 30 years, excluding Revelation and 22 books.
1: Okay. So we're going to look at Revelation in a slightly different perspective, but we're going to we're not going to leave it out. Go ahead.
2: The rest of the New Testament was written by six authors including Revelation.
1: Okay. So you've got a lot of years, actually not a lot of years in relation to the Old Testament. And you know, 65 years and you know, actually yeah, about 60-65 years including Revelation and that the New Testament is all is all over, okay? So there's not a lot of time to put the gospel out. So you, we would think that the most important teachings would be resounding throughout the letters. Let's examine all of the Gehenna scriptures by the writers of the gospels. And you know what? There's just one. One. Just one. James chapter 3 verses 5 through 6.
2: So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by Gehenna,
1: hell. By the incinerator. So he's saying the tongue is set on fire by the garbage dump, by what did it symbolize? Destruction. Utter, complete destruction. James is talking to followers of Christ. Same thing as Jesus. Remember, he's always talked to those people who should know better. Those who should know better, and he's reminding them that the fire of destruction that the tongue sets can eviscerate others the way Gehenna utterly destroys. But, you know, here's another fascinating piece of this. The rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, is a parable, first of all. And how do we know that? Because it's the fifth parable in a string of parables. There are four stories right before it, and it's the next story in line. Okay? So we know that it's a parable because of that. But here's the thing. One of the things about (laughs) the—and I'm going to get off on a tangent, but, you know, it says, you know, I am tormented in this flame. Okay, that's that's the line everybody looks at that says, well, you know, give me a drop of water on my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. The Look up, here, here's your homework. Look up the word for torment and look up the word for flame because flame, here's a shocker, but it's true, does not mean fire. It means blaze as in brightness. Every time that word flame is used in the New Testament, always is used with the word flame of fire, except in that parable, Jesus literally, look it up for yourself. Jesus literally took the fire out of it to make an illustration. But he says something interesting in the parable, right? Remember what he said about the tongue?
2: The the tongue is a fire.
1: Well, he says, I need a drop of water on my tongue. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Look what James says. The tongue is a fire. So, Jesus is talking in the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus about the Pharisees saying and doing things that rejected him and led to their own rejection from God. That's what the parable is about.
2: It's like their words
1: have tormented. Yes, their words. Give me water. What does water represent in Scripture? Truth. Give me truth on my tongue because it has eviscerated everything. Whole different meaning when you look at it scripturally. Anyway, we'll move on from that. It's just so fascinating, Jonathan. It's so it's fascinating. Fun. But after this James scripture, there is no more New Testament Gehenna anywhere. Now, Revelation does mention Gehenna, uh, does not mention Gehenna, but it talks about a lake of fire. It truly does. We will address that thoroughly in part three. Okay, so we're not going to take time now, but we will get to that thoroughly in part three. But Jonathan, we need to spend time on the fact of the absence of the teaching of eternal torment throughout the rest of the New Testament. Why is it that all of those books, the Acts of the Apostles, and all of the letters by the Apostles, why is it that it just doesn't come up? Rick, because it
2: doesn't exist.
1: (laughs) And Jonathan, I think that is this simple, simple, simple way to look at it. So so let's get practical. Why the silence throughout all of the New Testament on Gehenna? You're right, because it doesn't exist. But if its meaning carries such dire consequences and such eternal consequences, shouldn't they be talking about it? Let's give an example, a very graphic example. Here's the Apostle Paul bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders. This is in Acts chapter 20 verses 26 to 30, he is never going to see them again. He knows it. And this is a tearful parting. And he is telling them that he's going to be persecuted. And and they're like, you can't leave us. And he says, I have to, because I have to do the will of God. And he's telling them things that he believes are truly, deeply necessary. Here's what he says, Acts 20, verse 26 and 27, to start with.
2: Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from
1: declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Wait a minute. Did he just say that he declared to them the whole purpose of God? He certainly did. Did he? Do we have any any writings where he told them about hell or hellfire or eternal torment? Uh, none. Rick. None. So was he being truthful? Did he de- absolutely? Did he declare the whole purpose of God? Did he, he did for- indeed? Did he forget? No. So you've got to look at this and say, why wouldn't he have been all over it? Because he didn't need to be. Here's what he says. And we read these verses earlier, but we'll go back to Acts 20, 28 to 30.
2: Be on the guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among you your own selves men
1: will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them and we can see that when we went through the church history of the followers after the apostles how that exact thing happened with this doctrine okay it's, it's, it's amazing how clear it is when we see it in, in light of Scripture. Jonathan, crystal clear. Yeah, it is. It is. It is crystal clear. One last Facebook comment. This is from Chris. He says, I've examined the posting on hell, and due to the many false interpretations, translations, and traditions of men, the very idea of hell has been deeply ingrained in the minds of men. Uh, this doctrine slanders the Creator's name, plan, and His justice. Men have made Him into a bloodthirsty, raging, pagan deity when He isn't. So I'm commending you guys with getting people to really think about what they truly believe and understand that particular topic. So um, thank you, Chris, for supporting what we believe to be thorough scriptural perspective, and that's the key, thorough scriptural perspective. If you want to challenge it, great, have at it, but challenge specifically things that we have said. Don't challenge by saying, well, what about this scripture? Look at what we've said and find what's wrong with it. Then tell us, we'll respond. We will respond if you tell us. Listen to what we've said. Study what we said. Tell us what's wrong. And, and we'll come back and give you our best, best uh, explanation. Bottom line, Jonathan, is this. Total destruction is the biblical end for the incorrigible. Both in the Old and New Testament, tell us this. Good example, Acts 3.23.
2: And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among
1: the people. Okay. Shall be destroyed. Now, those who believe in hellfire say, well, that means I'm going to go to hell. But what does the word destroyed mean? To extirpate. Okay. What does to extirpate
2: mean? To destroy completely, to wipe out, to pull up by the root, to
1: cut off, out by surgery. Okay. So the word is emphatic, not of torture, not of torment, not of something that goes on and on and on, but of the cutting off, the wiping out, and the destruction complete destruction of something. Everyone who will not hear that prophet will be cut off from among the people, destroyed, nothing more, nothing less. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter ye at the
2: straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go thereat.
1: Okay, broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's a different word. What does that one mean? Ruin or loss physically, spiritually, or eternally. Okay. Destruction of uh, Philippians three nineteen. Whose end is
2: destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame.
1: Okay. Destruction, destruction, destruction. There are folks, if you subscribe to CQ Rewind, you'll see this in the bonus material this week. If you don't subscribe, please do. For the sake of if you want to argue with us, do me a favor, subscribe just this week. you can unsubscribe after get the rewind, look at the bonus material because there are a load of scriptures talking about destruction in in the Bible as the end uh the the end result of god's justice and that's much many more times than Gehenna is mentioned <laughs> you're right, you're absolutely positively right. Jonathan, one final uh, text that certainly could have, and when you think about it, should have been an opportunity to proclaim the torment of hell if it did exist, and that's Romans 8.6. For to
2: be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and
1: peace. You notice the contrast. Death versus life and peace. It's not death and torment. It's not eternal suffering versus life and peace. It's simply Death versus life and peace. No torture, no flames, no eternity, simply the end. Folks, that's what the scriptures teach us. And what we've seen today is that we've taken just a brief look, a very brief look at New Testament scripture. And in that brief look, what we've discovered is that there is a lot that supports the idea that there is no eternal torment and torture. Is there judgment? absolutely do people get away with things no that's not god's plan just because you don't believe in eternal torment doesn't mean you don't believe in god's judgment but it executes itself in a different way which is actually just and gives people an opportunity with mercy and wisdom attached to that justice hellfire as a doctrine is wrong according to scripture Study it. If you don't agree, listen to what we said. And give us a response, and we'd love to respond back to you. For Jonathan, Rick, and Christian Questions, part three will be coming up, and we'll use your thoughts and your scriptures to entirely build part three. We want to hear. So until that, well, until next week. It won't be part three next week. But till next week, the hell of the scriptures is different than the hell of Christian tradition. Think about it. Folks, listen, we want to hear from you. Give us your feedback, send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Rate us, review us, we greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about Should We Be Peacemakers? Talk to you then.